Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. It's Brendan here with Mark, Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com, episode 210, Friday, October the 8th, 2021. And for those of you astute subscribers and listeners, you probably realised that last week was slightly different than our normal pitter-patter. That's because we, Mark was in the middle of nowhere, as he has been recently, and we put one of our Keeper episodes, which was a pre-recorded one that we'd had for, oh, I think it was probably six or eight months ago we recorded that one, Mark, so um, it'll be interesting to see whether we get much feedback <laughs> as far as... Um, be interesting to see if everyone anyone noticed picked it whether they yeah. picked it yes um but here we are back almost live <laughs> and uh, i'll fix the episode numbers too you probably didn't notice mark i was sort of um a little bit out of kilter with the last few episode numbers and this one is 210 i think i skipped one or i had two lots of 207 or something or other but i've fixed it and i've fixed it on their website vetgurus.com the place to go to get all our previous episodes and to do a search Send us an email, vetgurus, vetgurus at gmail.com. Mark, and we were talking, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a little bit about your trip, your ongoing trip, but we were talking about what I've been up to, and it's been a busy day here, Mark. Um, as you know, I was in sort of semi-isolation, wasn't I? My wife um, happened to go to what's a, what was called a Tier 1 exposure site um, here in Melbourne. So as part of that, she had to isolate for 14 days and have two COVID tests, one um, immediately and one on day 13 or so. And the concern there was that obviously if I was in the household as well, I would have to do the 14 days isolation but um, the advice from the department was if I left immediately which is what I did um, I could um, spend my time elsewhere and still get tested immediately and if my test was negative I could go about my business so Jane my eldest and myself um, we hide out an Airbnb (laughs) Mark as you know we hide out a beautiful little Airbnb mud brick cottage in um, a very historic area, which just happens to be five minutes away from my vet clinic. <laughs> and we had a, quite a nice relaxing time for 10 days or so um, there. So we um, did a bit of bonding and my wife and my youngest um, stayed at home in isolation and had home delivery from the supermarkets and um, um, a few people dropping off flowers at the doorstep and other assorted gifts for them. And um happy to say that um, her final test was negative so she wasn't um, exposed to COVID-19 or or didn't become infected Uh, and uh, I'm back at home but I was due to mow the lawn mark before I left. (laughs) Before you left. And as you know um, we've had a fair bit of rain and some uh, warmish sort of humid days here in spring it is in Melbourne Australia and I'll tell you what that the grass went nuts and it was above knee height. Um, so I've just spent, I, I calculated about two and a half hours trying to um, f- finally finish mowing the lawn and um, have a few blisters on the hands there, <laughs> these 
surgeon hands that are always scrubbing are a little bit soft. Um, but gee, it was hard work. But um, it's finally been done, and um, I've knocked that grass down. And now I'm sat here recording with a with a little um, ale in front of me, Mark, um, to to relax and have a bit of a chat to you. So that's what my day has been. And doesn't I think if you doesn't the the lawn getting the lawn done give you that? Um, it's at one of the jobs that yes. gives you a sense of satisfaction that it's done. It is, and it's a bit. It's a little bit like when you paint a room, Mark. Um, or, um, once it's done, you you feel good about it but you think god i'd hate to do this as a as a living because i just i don't think i could stand doing it over and over and over again and starting at square one and it's all the prep the prep and the pack up um for painting that i hate um but having but the, said that, the, that's the, what we do for our veterinary um, <laughs> careers, don't we, Mark? Yes, we constantly Prepare. do um, fairly similar procedures. Um, although the advantage of doing exotics is we we're often seeing something that's a little bit different or something that nobody's ever seen before. But it is those things that um, give you a, a, a quite a visual sense of you know the 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 um, all the prep work you do before you paint. Um, still can take a lot of work but whack that paint on and then all of a sudden the, the it looks like you've done a whole lot and the, the place looks different and similarly with the lawn you can um you know do the edges do a bit of raking do all that stuff but whack the lawn mower over get that uh um, little um get that knee high stuff down to only a couple of centimeters and very even with you i know what you're like too brendan you you would have uh very very neat rows. <laughs> I go. I sort of do it in. A, I was going to ask you. Do you do you mow in up and down in strips, or do you? I tend to do just go sort of in a big circle, although it's sort of a you know rectangular sections. And I mow. Uh, I mow clockwise, Mark. I, I, I mow clockwise. Do you mow clockwise up and down. or anti-clockwise? Up and, up and down. down. Up and down. Yeah, I tend to go clockwise and do the outside first and slowly increase in um, speed as I get to smaller <laughs> and smaller circles um, until I get that last little strip. And then I do the same out front as well because we have the lawn out front, but it's not as bad out front. But, yeah, it was – It was. A, let me have a look. I'll just spin around here. Yeah, it looks good, Mark. I must have – yes, <laughs> it is a sense of satisfaction having made it. But this time of the year it'll be two weeks and I'll be um, – <laughs> out there again so that's what i've been up to so you've been out in some pretty hot regions of um outback queensland have you mark we have we kate and i spent uh um a week at uh, a cattle station noon bar uh, um, uh, it was uh it's a wonderful place and angus and karen who run the place wonderful naturalists as well as graziers and uh and really we had a great time in there their, their, um, the parts of their property that provided excellent natural habitat. So saw a fair bit of, you know, the usual bird stuff, um, uh, quite a few unusual reptiles. We did get involved in a storm in the middle of it, um, 12 minutes of, uh, of dumping rain and, and vicious winds and, um, and, and uh, one of the other campers on the property um, did manage to get bogged in the black uh, soil mud that is uh, typical of the Channel Country. But now we've ended up in uh, Birdsville at the moment, um, so our reception is good again, um, and uh, we're still enjoying our at 
outback journey. Ah, yes, and um, Birdsville, a very, very famous town or city. Do they call it a city market? Is it big enough to be called a city or not? No, no, not no. it's. It, there's uh, um, the last it's census listed 112 <laughs> per, uh, permanent residents. Ah, that's so, not quite a city, is it? 112 it's a, people. It, it's, it's actually a community. A funny thing to be up here because it is famous, as you said. It's a famous outback community, um, and there are a number of uh, big social events: the Birdsville races and the uh, the. Big, the concert known as the Big Bash on uh, on a red sand dune outside town, um, but um, but uh, we're in the um, Diamantina Shire, which is a an area twice the size of Denmark. Um, it has a population, a total population, I think, of six hundred people. Um, and the administrative centre is uh, in a town north of here, Bulia. Um, and um, and really, um, Birdsville only just barely ranks above Batuta as the um, you know as a, a population center in this part of the world. Uh, Batuta is uh, just has one family and a pub, um, and of course is the home of the famous Batuta Advocate, the satirical newspaper. Um, well. Name home in name only, um, but um, but yeah, Birdsville, while being the most famous, is certainly not the biggest centre in this relatively underpopulated part of Australia. Well, I'm just glad they've got good internet connection, Mark, so we can record this week because um, you and me both, Brendan, you and yes, me both. I was, well, I'm going to jump. I'm going to make it punchy. I'm going to jump into my one and only news story, Mark. And this one, as we're talking before we started recording, is a is a place we have both seen, and it's butterfly. Oh no, you're doing a butterfly one, aren't you? Um, it's the um, council drives possums out of the park. It's here in Melbourne, and the city of Melbourne embarked on a three year campaign to drive possums out of a Carlton Park, Mark, which is University Square, which was next to the conference centre, the hotel that we held our unusual pet conference a couple of years ago. And they, over three years, they sealed more than 150 hollows in 13 trees. It's not a, it's, it's a pretty small park, isn't it, Mark? It is. Um, and they removed um, nesting boxes because they were worried that, that they were redeveloping the park and sort of supposedly revitalising the park there. Um, so uh, they had an urban ecologist um, who advised the council and uh, 39 of the park's old trees were removed as part of the redevelopment and um, because the trees were in decline as well and they would have um, well died off or, or fallen over. Um, so they pruned the trees, they, they sealed off the nesting boxes and um, now they have only I think a dozen or so um, possums live in there. But um, the main part of this particular um, redevelopment was they um, they they ended up with a it's a hologram um, that was installed there um, by a, an artist from Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology University. They commissioned the artist Michaela Dwyer to create a public art for the square, and guess what? She came up with a holographic a hologram of a possum that appears and disappears, Mark, from the trees, and it's called apparition. 
and uh, she said it's a love story to the possum. I love possums. Well, it's a love story to the possums that they end up getting rid of, isn't it, Mark? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it fascinates me that no one on the council went, hang on, hang on, this, this might not be seen as <laughs> Let's get rid of these possums. Oh, let's commission, commission it. So, yeah, I, being the cynic that I sometimes uh, Mike, I think they were using it to um, sort of appease the people who. Oh, didn't you think want... it's a little bit of greenwashing? Yes, yes. Um, but I, I like some of the comments from the artists there. I'm trying to invoke the possum as a kind of ghost, a messenger from another world to tell us stories from beyond. This possum is a kind of messenger. It's it, even if it's now in the digital world, it's that possum that we might have lost. So there you go. But the lobby group, group they, they, the lobby group Animal Active Australia, Mark, they cottoned onto it. They lodged a freedom of information request saying the council's action led to a wildlife tragedy um, <laughs> and international starvation of animals and deprivation of shelter basic to survival is cruelty under under all jurisdictions. Um, so there you go. Um, so a bit of an interesting one, a bit of politics going on there, Mark, but it is a, a cute little park there that I, I park my car there every day during that con conference just next to that park. And, um, yeah, um, I don't think that um, holographic possum, the apparition, Mark, was was there when we had our conference, but I'll, I'll be sure to go and try and um, see if I can see the apparition next time I'm in the park, Mark. So that's my new story. Your news story is a paradox, Brendan. What do you My have for news us? story, on the other hand, is just it gives more rise to more questions than it resolves, I reckon. Um, so my story is um, about butterflies from northern Sulawesi, one of my favourite parts of the world, and obviously uh, the location... Um, drew the author of the article to uh, invoke Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace as the Wallace line goes through um, Sulawesi um, to, to imply that this particular behaviour does not necessarily seem to um, promote the, you know, promotion of um, genetic material. So what happens here, Brendan, is that... Um, in this part of the world, the milkweed group of butterflies um, eat, uh, as caterpillars eat the milkweed, and they sequester various toxins from the milkweed um, that um, protect them as adults. Birds recognise um, these chemicals as unpleasant, unpalatable and noxious, um, and uh, as a consequence, these butterflies have really bright warning colours. Um, and uh, just because they have abundance of these chemicals, I reckon, the males produce mating pheromones from an excess of these chemicals. Um, so they really uh, want to get a load of them. Um, so the one of the evolutionary uh, developments is that these adult male butterflies have a little... Um, uh, well, little hooks on their legs, which they scratch the leaves, release sap, and they drink the sap to up their dose of these uh, dangerous chemicals. Um, so they can produce the pheromones um, and probably enhance their concentration of the poison. What's been discovered now um, 
by um, uh, by PhD candidates from my alma mater in Sydney at the University of Sydney. Um, he Kai T um, ha- has uh, identified situations where the those male butterflies actually seem to attack um, some of the caterpillars, some of the uh, younger members of their family, and once they scratch them and there's a bit of ooze uh, coming out of the, the uh, poor scratched caterpillar, they drink that. Um, uh, and, of course, in the tradition of us looking for new words, um, they've coined kleptopharmacophagy, a chemical theft of a theft of a chemical uh, for consumption as a new word. I'd be really interested to know, Brendan, um, are there, you know, maybe they're doing it from different species, caterpillars of different species. That certainly wasn't the implication, but I wouldn't be surprised it was. Or maybe they've identified these caterpillars of the same species as somehow faulty, diseased, maybe not going to make it into butterflies. And so they're uh, taking advantage of the work they've already done. I don't know, but they're, they're worried that this is um, some a behaviour that's an exception to the rule, that, um, you know, they're, they're having a crack at the family's young and maybe interfering with the next generation's genetic material for their own benefit. What do you think, Brendan? It's a, yeah, it's, I think it's a, they're only scratching the surface, oh, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more study to be done in this, this kleptopharmacophagy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I literally think they've only just started um, the process of working out what's happening here. Um, is it more than just using these as, as a, you know, defence mechanism you know is there any sort of nutritional value in these sort of things that they get in um is there other uses of these um chemicals mark or is it just for that one one um process or situation that they've discovered that mr t has discovered here uh, good old mr t um did you ever watch the <laughs> what was the um what was the um show with mr t in it um the um tv series it was one of our um, listeners will yeah, no doubt chime in with an email to us if you can look it up. Well, <laughs> I've gone off on a bit of a tangent of, as usual, Mark. Um, so yes, um, and they're pretty as as many butterflies are, or most, if not all, they're pretty spectacular looking butterflies. These aren't they? Um, the A team, yes, the A team, yes, and Mister T. Those were the days when I used to watch the A team. Yes, so. That's them's my thoughts, Mark. That um, they've got a lot more um, research to go um, in this, and um, I'm sure they'll be um, drilling down and, and publishing some more articles about this particular process that happens with these milkweed butterflies, Mark. That's my thoughts. So we're going to be punchy, as I said at the start, and I think we'll jump into another article which leads us in to our main topic this week which is a sort of a mini topic but I think it's a good one because I, I think a fair number of veterinarians are presented with a with a turtle that has some buoyancy issues so it's it's not a rare 
phone call isn't mark of a, of a client that say my turtle can't sink or it can't dive or it's it has a tilt um it's leaning to one side or it's at the bottom of the um, tank and it can't seem to um manage to to um get up to the surface very easily or readily um and i think this article you sent to me mark so if you want to um, briefly summarize the actual article it's from science daily i think the article uh, reports on a study about um, those giant leatherback turtles um, and the researchers, it sounds like they slammed them up with a uh, huge amount of data collecting information, triaxial accelerometers, um, and they whacked them onto leatherback females as they nested on the beaches in the US Virgin Islands um, just to assess how much how they manage their buoyancy. Um, the leatherbacks are famous because they they can dive down to 1.25 kilometres. They regularly get down to 600 metres. Um, and, um, and it's just fascinating to contemplate um, what they're, you know, how they uh, physiologically manage that. Now, many of the diving animals that we know, um, many of the cetaceans and uh, pinnipeds, they will ex exhale, empty their lungs so that they, uh, they are negatively buoyant. They don't carry any extra air and so they will sink um, uh, and that helps them to, in the process of diving. Um, it's interesting to contemplate um, uh, whether turtles do the same thing. And as it transpires, they don't. They maintain some air in their lungs, um, and so they have to actively swim uh, down for um, some time um, before the pressure of the water cancels out the buoyancy of the, the uh, air in the lungs, and then they start to descend as they become increasingly negatively buoyant. Um, so they really only have to swim for the first, well, um, uh, little bit, um, three, ten metres or whatever, um, and project themselves in a direction. And then once they get past that point, they... Um, they slow, steadily glide down uh, deeper and deeper. And, um, and so uh, swimming back up and as they approach the surface, they once again become positively buoyant and uh, reach the surface. Um, it's fascinating. And, and, and it's just the start of the investigation into the complex nature of, of uh, the metabolic physiologic changes that... Um, that, uh, that these animals, both the leatherbacks and all the other species of uh, turtle, have to entertain to manage um, how they're going in the water, Brendan. Yes, it's a great introduction, even though veterinarians presented with a turtle that has problems with buoyancy is almost certainly not going to be one of these leatherbacks unless it's a, a wildlife veterinarian. Um, it, does ex it does give you a bit of an introduction to the complexities of, as you said of um the whole um impressive um method of these animals and the way they control their buoyancy and and especially with species like this can can dive down to incredible depths marks um and you know um i forget the the um the equations as far as um you know pressure at those sort of de depths mark um 
I think it's um, how many atmospheres it is as you go down. I um, vaguely recall learning something a little bit like that when I was um, doing my diver's certificate, Mark, but it's long been forgotten um, there. But, um, you know, and that's another aspect that we tend to, you know, forget about um, the how do they cope with those sort of pressures down there, you know, and, and also all that cardiovascular sort of changes that will then be going on there because they, they're down underneath the, the um, um, surface of the water having taken a breath mark and um, may not be up for a very long time. So they are pretty impressive, impressive animals. Um, but let's jump on to the issues that we see commonly in, in practice, Mark. Um, what's, the, what's the sort of classic presentation that you would um, get from that client um, with that turtle that um, appears to be having some sort of buoyancy disturbance? They float. That's the most common thing we get. <laughs> they, we get um, people calling us up, asking us, you know, my, my turtle often is still eating, but not always, um, and uh, just cannot get down into the water. They, um, they float uh, inappropriately. And, um, and that's probably the most common clinical sign that we see people present with, that um, the turtles are making an effort to get down from the surface. Uh, but they cannot manage to do it. They're stuck at the top. And I th that's an important point in that they they, they struggle um, and they can often get into great distress or even drown. And I think it's it's not rare for a client to not comprehend um, initially anyway the fact that their turtle may drown um, in that enclosure and if it's distressed and, and trying to submerge and it can't, they can rapidly wear themselves out so you know part of the process of investigating these cases is making sure that we're keeping the animal alive and and doing our procedures like dry docking them um, if we need to um, to to prevent them literally drowning their mark um, and i think so Brendan, our, the internet is our enemy in this circumstance because there is you know whether it's goldfish or um uh, whichever species that has variable buoyancy the internet seems to make it seem like oh you can just you know change their buoyancy by doing this adding a bit of extra weight or whatever it makes it a very simplistic thought so anyone who does have a turtle whose buoyancy is a little bit unusual might be led astray by um, the internet i know that's a very hard thing to believe um, but, um, but certainly um, my experience is clients often misapprehend the seriousness of the nature and are, are looking for a simple quick fix, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and that might be in that goldfish feeding peas to the goldfish um, based on that classic, you know, paper that was written a long time ago saying, you know, to adjust the buoyancy issues in a goldfish by feeding them. I think it was, what, frozen thawed yep. peas yep. or something, yeah. Um, but we won't get um, into goldfish. It's very common, yeah. Brendan. Do you see it nearly as often? Like we would uh, um, probably get questions about this, particularly in the spring this time of year, um, as the turtles become more metabolically active. Um, uh, we probably get calls about it every week, I would say. Um, and so it's a very common presentation, especially at this time of year. Is that the situation down in sunny Victoria? Yeah, probably not as common as as you mentioned, but but certainly um, as I, at this time of the year, it, there is an increased frequency of it. Um, that's that's for sure. 
Um, so how do we approach the work up in these, Mark? Well, we said we'd be punchy, but we'll do a bit of a, a dot point summary of um, um, thoughts on, you know, what you need to do, what gives you most bang for the buck, Mark, with, with trying to determine what's happening with these cases. Well, this is a good one to really spend some time on your physical exam, get some observation of the turtle in the water, because that can be a good clue um, as to where you go further. Um, the the logic I apply to these guys is that um, they're floating because they have unusual gas located somewhere in their body, gas that shouldn't be there, um, that they would normally be able to uh, breathe out or get rid of whichever way, and they cannot. So uh, trying to make note of, you know, is the turtle tipped forward with its head up and uh, um, and uh, that part of the body seems to be floating, or is it got its butt up in the air and uh, and its head's pointed down and and it's madly panicking and trying to swim to the bottom. That's the first thing, your physical exam. And then once you've done that, I get most use from uh, diagnostic imaging, trying to take some radiographs. And obviously the radiographs give us some indication about where that gas might be. And then we can um, maybe, if we think we've got uh, gas loculated in the the uh, pulmonary spaces, um, then we might um, think about a, a blood draw to make an assessment of white cell count. So the third arm of our investigation would be some blood work, Brendan. Let me turn myself off mute there. Um, yes, yeah, so it's getting back to basics as you um, so beautifully illustrated there, Mark. It's thinking why are they floating abnormally? It's almost certainly going to be related to abnormal gas um, accumulation usually in somewhere. So where is that? Is it in the respiratory tract? Is it in the intestinal tract? Is it somewhere else? Um, and radiographs certainly give us very big bang for the buck, don't they, Mark? Because sometimes you can see some pretty spectacular signs of where that um, gas is accumulating in them. Sometimes you don't see anything on the bloods or, or on the radiographs um, and then you start scratching your head a little bit and then you go, get going back to basics. Um, and I think um, thinking of the causes of why this happens, um, guess what? It gets back to um, what we what we talk about week in, week out, doesn't it, Mark, with, with most of these? It's, it, it's often traces back to the husbandry and the environment of that animal. Um, so do you want to have a little chat about that? Well, certainly, uh, you've, as usual, hit the nail on the head. We can almost certainly get some clues from looking at the history. And, and often um, there's a lot of confusing information about uh, um, preferred optimal temperature zones for many of our uh, freshwater turtle species. And the wide range of, um, of many of the species mean that uh, um, I suspect there's going to be um, some individuals uh, who um, come from uh, rivers in Victoria who are, have a, a different uh, POTZ, say, to individuals in northern New South Wales. And so... Um, making sure that you provide a, a, um, at least the opportunity for some degree of uh, range of temperatures um, consistent with uh, that species' um, known ecology and metabolism, um, that's got to be the first step. And, and almost invariably we find that 
um, when these turtles come in, the information provided by the vendor or the pet store is, um, well, not that I want to lay charges against anyone, but inadequate, shall we say, Brendan. Um, and people are trying to do the right thing as they understand it, but it's just not right for that turtle. And those uh, environmental conditions lead to suppressed immunity and very often we end up with secondary infections and particularly those infections can be in the lungs um, and the mucus that builds up in response to that is often a cause of trapped gas and floating turtles. And I think a follow-on comment you need to then state to the clients is it's not a quick fix with these animals um, because... I think not unexpectedly, um, many clients think that you'll be able to fix the problem magically and um, that animal will be um, going home from the consultation mark um, back into the tank and it won't have its buoyancy problem. How long do these take to recover from these oh. um, conditions of well, even, inadequate buoyancy? And even... Um, a little bit more aggressively than you suggest that, that not only is it going to take a very long time maybe um six months to a year before those that turtles return to normal metabolism but there's going to be some that don't that uh, once they reach the point where they have a big pocket of of uh um, air trapped by dry mucus in their um the you know the the uh um, lungs, it's very difficult for them to expectorate that stuff. They can't um, cough. They can't, you know, um, uh, get the gear out. And so it depends on the cellular um, activity, the uh, the um, heterophils and macrophages to um, break that stuff down. And that's not you know, that's a microscopic process that takes um, some considerable time and sometimes uh, leaves um, residual scarring of some sort or another, which can, um, you know, predispose that animal to long-term problems. Have you ever had a client say, look, can't you just pop a needle in there yeah. and deflate it? Oh, so often, so, so often. Um, and it, it's, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, the 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 thought that's introduced for that simplistic response, um, uh, yeah, you've got to guard against that at the very beginning and emphasise the complicated nature and and uh, uh, let them know that it's going to be very unlikely um, that you're going to be able to just pop the bubble and let them behave normally. Absolutely. So it's going back to basics, um, getting some diagnostic, diagnostics done, um, convincing the client that it's not a simple fix, um, correcting um, any in inadequate or inappropriate husbandry and um, time, isn't time. it, Mark, with these? Um, there is one other comment I've got too, Brendan. With, with these cases, I, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but there's three sort of locations I commonly find gas. You've mentioned um, the gastrointestinal tract and um, certainly we've had turtles that have had foreign bodies and, and the the um, stasis that arises or the obstruction that arises means that gases build up. Um, we also, the, probably the most common cases are the pulmonary ones, but we also get um, uh, salomic cases. The gas uh, is more diffuse in the 
uh, in the coelom, um, probably, um, this is Mark's theory, Mark's theory alone, that uh, certain bacteria that localise in the kidneys can be gas producing and, and release that gas into the coelom. Um, and those cases, if we've got that sort of diffuse coelomic gas pattern, um, uh, then they're, you know, as you can imagine, if it has arisen from uh, gas producing bacteria in the kidneys, they're disastrous, Brendan. So those radiographs are very, very useful. Yes. And in conjunction with the bloods that you also do to help detect those organ dysfunctions and and the cell count as well so um yeah presented with a with a turtle that's floating or has abnormal buoyancy um concerns is it's not necessarily a simple case is it mark i, I think that's my bottom line with these so they're they're certainly fascinating and not a um a rare condition um and there's certain times of the year as you mentioned that they they are seen more more frequently um and and but um the good news is the the workup and and the treatment and the um um supportive care for them is is guess what fairly similar to what we do with a lot of um <laughs> conditions in unusual pets we, we we look at the husbandry we look at the the environment we look at that aquarium um, we see what's inadequate or inappropriate and we do our diagnostics and we um, formulate our plan and we cross our fingers and we hope that the client um, believes what we're saying and uh, hangs in there for the um, length of time that's needed um, and uh, my, my final comment with these cases is Mark that some of these um, and I, I'd be interested to see what you say with these is that um, some of them end up with residual um, problems um, and we may not be able to correct that tilt in that turtle um, long term so it's a I think with some of them, it's it's managing the problem and, and quality of life and trying to correct any of those underlying causes, but we may be left with a, a turtle that has a, a long-term tilt. I agree. I think there's some turtles we see that uh, that have, you know, fibrosis in one part of the, the lungs. Um, they can't um, uh, affect airflow through that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, very effectively at all. It acts like some form of sinus, the scar through the lungs, the fibrotic tissue holds it in place and they can't easily empty it. Um, and But there are those cases where that stops being an active problem um, and, um, and they stabilise and they don't have an active infection. And I think those it's perfectly reasonable with those guys to, um, to manage them as... Um, as turtles that have buoyancy problems. Um, but it's important to emphasise to the clients that that will predispose them almost certainly to problems in the future. Yes, and cut down on the peas that you feed them because that's probably not going to help very much with this condition despite what you see on Dr Google. Um, and I think with that, we're going to jump out, Mark, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. 
Thanks again and see you next time. 